GNS um, comes from sociology background, but is now the Oxford Internet Institute, where she's been looking at online networks, and this topic in particular, kind of network solidarity and um, how we communicate with each other and how this is kind of mobilized politically is uh, topical and of kind of an ongoing interest. But I'll just hand straight over. Thank you. Thank you. Um, come and launch here. This feels so formal to stand here on a day when everyone's there. So I'm Gina Neff, and I, much of my work is about people and work and institutions. And I come from this classically trained sociology background, and I've been working in the field of internet studies for the last 15 years or so. And the, so what I'm going to do today is talk about this chapter that I've developed for a book called Trump in the Media. I'll tell you a little bit of backstory about that collection uh, and about um, and this particular chapter. Um, but that to say that this, these are a set of ideas that I'm very much in the process of developing. And so I'm very much looking forward to our discussion um, today. So this um, collection uh, came out of a series of conversations from two communication scholars, both of whom I cite in the paper. Pablo Bosowski and um, Zizi Papakaritsi, some of you, many of you may know both. Um, Pablo is very much, his work is very much aligned with the kind of goals and mission of the Reuters Institute in terms of his kind of intellectual approach. He's doing cross-national comparative work on the state of journalism in an online world. And it's from some of his emerging studies that we have um, you know, first-hand emerging accounts of how young people are using social media for news, for example. Zizi Papagritsi, um, another communication scholar, primarily working in political communication, has been thinking very deeply about the role of emotions in social media and, and what that's doing to our political discourse. And so they got together uh, right after the 2016 elections and said, oh my goodness, what just happened? Of course, it's the US election, not the UK election. Um, and decided very quickly to take what was in effect a series of tweets, blog posts, musings from communication scholars, journalism scholars, and try to very rapidly make sense of what we had just seen in terms of um, a media outcome. So my perspective um, comes from ideas about networks that I've been working with for um, since the early days in my career, but I'm not a journalism studies scholar, right? So I'm coming from a very different perspective and then thinking about this kind of phenomenon that affected me as an American very much. Um, and I start with a concept um, that comes from um, Eric Hobsbawm, the economic historian, where he basically says this notion of a long century is something we might want to think about. That you know, historians don't necessarily mark calendar um, dates as the beginning and end of a particular era. And he he talked about the long 19th century that essentially ended um, with the outbreak of World War I in 1914. So, you know, if you think about kind of parsing history, right, we move into the 20th century really at the beginning of this one event. 
So we can, we can think about a long 20th century, I argue, um, that future historians may really look and think about what happened in 2016, both in the UK and in the US, as really marking the end of a 20th century project of modernization. And that's the kind of overarching argument that I'm making in the paper, right? Um, we've got a series of concepts and ideas that have carried us very well through the 20th century. Um, they've fallen apart and we need to do, we've got our homework set out for us. So these elections show how the 20, I would argue that these elections show how the 20th century ideals that defined the larger project of both my discipline of communication, but also of journalism and media scholarship are, are really now misplaced. And I think we've got um, something from the perspective of media scholarship, it's this, this notion of what we were doing for the beginning first century of media scholarship is really now over. Um, that's my bold statement. And it's time for new theories to catch up with these new realities. So what do I mean by this? Well, the, 20th, the intellectual founders of these three kind of related academic disciplines, not practices, but academic disciplines of journalism studies, media studies, and communication studies really anchored their research, I would say, fundamentally on democratic ideals. And at the heart of that project was seeing the potential for informed publics as leading to better civic engagement and stronger democracies. So communication, to sum it up, in and of itself, good thing. That was the underlying assumption of much of what the scholarship was doing in the 20th century. These dual forces in the US of rapidly expanding numbers in higher education um, and increased attention to the role um, that that academics could play in, in expanding, um, expanding um, workforces and publics uh, really had this kind of double effect. Um, they, they meant that we entered into arguably a very self-congratulatory um, set of projects intellectually. So we, we have uh, an attention in media, communication, journalism studies coming out of World War II of paying very careful attention to the rise of propaganda and thinking about what the proper role of mass media should be in a democratic society. At the same time, our, literally our bread and butter, our jobs in the US and the expansion of media, communication, um, and journalism studies, our jobs are expanding, our universities are expanding, for various great public higher education reasons, our student numbers are expanding, and thus these programs are proliferating. So we see the rise of a discipline at the same time we see students rising in demand for that. At the heart of this discipline, the heart of the idea, again, is the idea that there is something inherently good about the project that we're working on. And when I say good, I mean a very kind of normative, unquestioned assumption that journalism saves the world, right? So I'm not talking about journalists. I'm not talking about the mission of journalism. Within the field of journalism studies, 
underlying this notion is that uh, more news is better news. So the field's idealized subject was um, really an information-seeking rational actor presented with good information, presented with good news, would make really good modern liberal rational choices. Um, and new empirical tools that were being developed, so survey methods, for example, new quanti uh, quantitative tools, really studied new ways to really supported new ways to study audiences and get nuanced information and feedback about what was happening um, in audience opinions, audiences' attitudes, and audience beliefs. So this idealized subject becomes then the focus of our fields. It's really, they're armed with good quality news. They eagerly and will willingly and have the time to participate in this larger democratic process um, and they had the time and the inclination to do so, right? So we, we have this notion that if only news and information gets out, that somehow this will influence, that there's a mechanism that this will influence democracy. Now, as a field, I argue, we actually continue to rewrite that narrative through the 20th century, that that narrative of, um, you know, let's, Let's improve the project of democracy by improving the information environment is, is the underlying thing. Now, I, I, I'm not here to discredit that idea. It's noble, but I think something else is in play, and I think that's where my contribution is coming. So I'm not going to keep you. Hold on. I'm having, I'm having, I'm having cursor. Oh, there's my cursor. Sorry. I, there we go. Okay, so the argument then goes something like this. Even my own subfield of these studies, internet research, falls prey in its early days to this 20th century ideal. So there's an optimism with the rise of the internet that, um, that we can see this kind of um, project played out in even more democratic ways. So in the first 20 years of the World Wide Web, researchers asked if the internet was making people more isolated, if we were listening only to like-minded others, or if we would only listen to like-minded others. Um, will the internet be free for participation? And what role will news editors, journalists, and other cultural mediators play in this new information landscape? But fundamentally, even internet scholars repeated this assumption about the future of democracy being in the hands of information. More information, namely, more information could spark more and deeper democratic engagement with civic life. So this is, I think, the fatal flaw, this assumption that the information will spark better engagement. Now, the field of communication, the field of media studies, has always been about this meaning making and connection. But some, somewhere, some, some way, we've lost focus on the role of where people make meaning and where people make connections. And that's where I would like to kind of bring in the intervention. So while we have um, at the same time, at the end of the, the 20th century, we have this notion that 
our communication environments, our information environments are expanding, that people have access to more information, to better information. We have the rise, decline, and decay of social institutions. So the field focused on, the field of communication focused on how institutions made or um, supported but while the, the field focused on democracy, these institutions that I would argue were really important for making democracy were fading. Now companies, businesses, broke a tacit agreement with their um, employees that said that they would trade loyalty in exchange for um, long-term, longer-term employment. Membership in unions and social organizations that cut across the lines of race, class, uh, gender, those organizations dwindled in their membership. The middle class in several Western countries lost economic security that it won after World War II. And Eric Hobsbawm has a beautiful phrase about this. So, so he reflected on the end of the 20th century, and, and I'm going to read this quote. The cultural revolution of the late 20th century can thus be understood as the triumph of the individual over society, or rather, the breaking of the threads which in the past had woven human beings into social textures. Now for these social texture, textures have consisted not only of the actual relations between humans and their forms of organization, but also the general models of such relations and the expected patterns of people's behavior toward each other. Their roles were prescribed, though not always written. So, what Eric Hobsbawm describes in, in kind of his making of these arcs, the long 19th, the long 20th century, is something that the logic of markets wins out ultimately over the logics of social solidarity. And the social institutions that Americans, that support Americans, and I would argue in this country as well, and their daily well-being, they weakened and fractured over the 20th century. And thus, we're asking a lot of our media and our media landscape to repair the tears in these threads of social life. So we have this underlying assumption from our, our, the ways that we have thought about media and society that it is media that's creating our, our engagement and our democracy. Um, at the same time that the other social institutions that arguably are helping to build and support publics are fraying. So these public spheres, right, um, that, we, that, we, that we created, they actually became places where we discussed how markets were um, chipping away at that sense of, of public. So this so now we go into even more theory. Um, I told, I promised a riveting, uh, empirical, packed piece. So um, I would argue that a corrective for, for starting to think about this really is um, to, to bring in work that helps us think about social solidarity. And, you know, because this is um, comparing, kind of looking backwards to the 19th century and the transition to the 20th. Um, to think about the transition from the 20th to the 21st centuries, I, I think 
A corrective really could be seen in the writings of the early 20th century so sociologist Emile Durkheim. Now, his work hasn't been used as much in media and communication studies. We don't, we don't typically take Durkheim off the shelf um, for various good reasons. There, first, there are other theorists, I think, that, are, that have been a little more um, aligned with the communicative project. But So he wrote about these early shifts between um, industrial societies and traditional societies. And, and he thought about what he termed sociology. We get a lot of these concepts about social loneliness from Durkheim and his studies, um, including the idea of anomie, of, of feeling like we are in a situation where we don't understand the social norms, literally from the French, without norms, um, that we, that we are, are feeling a kind of normlessness in our, in our, because of these social trans, transformations. So, in The Division of Labor and Society, which is what book he wrote, he posed this puzzle. So how did modernity, how did the rise of the 20th century, how was the rise of the 20th century, um, make individuals more loosely connected to their existing social arrangements, but more tightly integrated into economic life? So um, something really interesting happened. We, societies moved from being much more tied to kin and village to being much more cosmopolitan. And we, as 21st century educated folk, would recognize that as a, as a good thing. Durkheim talked about these um, existing traditional social rela relationships as mechanical, right? They were, autom it was a kind of automatic solidarity. You don't have to question your um, your kinship ties. You don't have to question your village ties. You don't have to question your nationality ties when, when you're living in traditional society. That's a given. Um, and so this kind of mechanical, you really are just a cog in a larger social wheel. Um, this is how pre-industrial life, Durkheim argued, was, was um, organized. And it was really predicated, he argued, on this lack of personal autonomy over over whom, who one married, who you lived near, um, and there really was an excess of shared common values, norms, um, and feelings. So, so for Durkheim, you know, think about what it's like to be a cosmopolitan at the at the turn of the 20th century, at the the end of the 19th and turn of the 20th century, and to have around you people who are celebrating the traditional village-based life when there are fabulous, wonderful universities and booming towns and, and great things happening in a, in a more cosmopolitan setting. So, so Durkheim really had a clear notion that you could be overconnected. You could be too tightly tied to your communities. So he contrasts that with what he termed organic solidarity. And he said that this is what emerges when people live in industrial society. That when you have an expanded notion of economic roles in society, a, a division of labor, you feel a sense of connection that helps give your work meaning. It helps give your life meaning. And it's how you find yourself useful in the world. Now, Durkheim's and Durkheimian notion of solidarity is is very um, it it's it's very different from what we might think of as Marxist solidarity, right? It's not a solidarity of us against them, working people of the world united against capital. It, 
It is the solidarity that you see that you have fulfillment and a role and that others around you have the same and that you get some sense of humanity from that connection. And this is, Durkheim argued, really important at a, at a moment in history, at the rise of the 20th century, when people found themselves confronted with more choice in personal associations, like who to marry, where to live, and how literally to handle yourself in modern society. What are your personal norms and values as these traditional values become less important for guiding you? Um, so, you know, we, we don't talk about Durkheim outside of sociology as much as we do with the other kind of two big theorists, um, uh, Karl Marx and Max Weber, but these ideas are rooted in something that feels right, I would argue, for assessing what we've looked to media to do um, in a function in society. That is that the long, the modern depersonalized social institutions like the economy or the news have anchored modern society until they no longer could. And that's now the problem and, and choice we find it. That liberal democracy rests on these social connections that no longer hold. People are less tied to their workplaces. They have less trust in their government. They have less trust in the news. So this notion of organic solidarity was really that it's through our individual positions and individual society, we learn to see empathy and we learn to see connection with one another. And I would argue that that's the project, really, of the 21st century. How do we label, name, define, and come to understand this notion of empathy and connection in our contemporary age? Now, the irony of late capitalism. This is where Durkheim goes horribly afoul and wrong. And I can, you know, I can, I can hear the, the scribblings of those of you who have read Durkheim of you know, getting ready to say, but Durkheim... This is the irony of late capitalism. This is the irony of our moment uh, in global capital at the moment. It's the most fervent supporters of the expansion of a market individualism really have attacked the basic fundamental connections of empathy and social connection that hold capitalism together. So if we go back to Durkheim, this division of labor and society, the, 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 the the empathy that we could get from understanding ourselves as productive citizens is something that has been attacked by a very tight connection to pro-market forces across Western European and US economies. So to bring Eric Hobsbawm back into it, um, as he wrote, the free market, quote, claimed to triumph as its nakedness and inadequacy could no longer be concealed. This, this, this function that Durkheim recognized at the beginning of um, 20th century capitalism, industrial capitalism, really begins to unweave. And this notion of this kind of sense of organic solidarity starts to break down when we stop to have these social institutions around us that can support us through capitalism. 
Hobsbawm, this is continuing Hobsbawm, capitalism, quote, took for granted the atmosphere in which it operated and, quote, ha had succeeded because it was not just capitalist, right? That, that these things, the, the benefits of industrial society really have created these extra ways to create organic solidarity if we follow this Durkheim's logic. Um, in other words, Durkheim was right. Without organic solidarity, industrial society would devolve into tribalism, traditionalism, and nationalism. And that's maybe where we see ourselves today. I hope it's not. Um, so let's talk about uh, social sol solidarity as a communicative project. Durkheim really put this trust in in a kind of process of capitalism. He put the trust in the division of labor in society. He was much more optimistic than Marx in this, in this regard. Um, and I would like to say, I think we can rebuild theories of sol social solidarity through a communicative lens, but we have our work cut out for us, both pragmatically speaking and um, in terms of an academic approach to, to, to theory. So this brings us back to Trump. Um, I would argue that because in media and communication, we've had this, we've literally had a focus on media and communication, right? We haven't had a focus on the role of media and communication in social organizations and institutions. Um, and it's blinded media scholars to these powerful ways that connection and solidarity were reimagined and rewoven in the 20th century. Finding communication scholars who, who did work on economic institutions, but weren't coming strictly from a Marxist political economy that said, you know, all market relations are terrible and bad. That's, it's, it's, you're, one is very hard pressed to find work on thinking about how are people imagining democracy through these social institutions within, within the field of media, right? So, so we've got this powerful recursive problem going on. Um, media and news information will help us um, drive forward democratic uh, participation. At the same time, we have what I would argue the biggest threat to democratic participation happening, right? The, this weakening of the social fabric that, that Hobsbawm's called it. Um, so into this comes uh, internet media, social media, uh, new media. Um, that that these, uh, this trend of new media intersects, but it doesn't wholly supplant what's happening to our economy at the same time. And yet this cultural image of the internet as free, um, to use um, free as in freedom, not free as in beer, um, a, a, a trope from internet studies, that this, internet, this idea that the internet is free really, really created this hope and possibility that when information is free, then we would have more democratic economic participation, democratic participation. Um, and, and it was another wonderful time for the expansion of communication and media as an academic discipline, right? It was suddenly to be relevant for democracy. We are expanding because more people want to understand the internet and internet studies from 15 years ago, while including my own department, wildly optimistic about how people are going to participate online. Now, um, 
Consider Facebook. Facebook really helps people connect in unprecedented ways, provide new forms of connection, enables rapid dis dissemination of information in times of political crisis um, and upheaval. Um, but we have barely scratched the surface on being able to think about what people are able to do in terms of rebuilding connection and empathy through their social media. In fact, um, work that's coming out suggests new media sites fundamentally reshape how we feel, not think, our way through news, and it reshapes our responses to it. That's, that's um, what Zizi Papakritsi calls effective publics. Um, but these effective publics, right, these networks, create a social infrastructure that can be activated in times of crisis. And our news is increasingly mediated through these networks. Um, it's mediated as what Pablo Boskowski terms as brief, interrupted, and partial ways. Um, and it's, it's one of the biggest transformations in how people are consuming, receiving, and circulating news since the advent of the World Wide Web. Um, so, these partialities, these fragments, these effective moments, they're resulting in a lack of a shared and coherent narrative in how we approach news and political life. So at the moment that we've seen the decay of these social threads, we're also seeing the decay of these coherent narratives that help us make sense of how we see our way through news. This fractured new media landscape um, it can't, I would argue, possibly reweave um, that, those social textures that Hobsbawm re referred to, that they, because they've been long stretched thin by free markets and they've been pulled into breaking. Right, so we've we've taken out the capacity of our marketplaces to actually help people create and recreate social solidarity. Um, so I. I would pose the problem is this problem of solidarity and not a problem of echo chambers, that we're not going to solve the problem of creating bridges across divisive societies by algorithmic news um, sources. News mediation has now shifted from professional newsrooms to Silicon Valley algorithms, and we've seen this problem really with the trace data. We've seen how um, our trust in social connections is being supplanted not from the sources of news, but from who is giving us news, who is sharing news. It's creating this environment that um, is just ripe for disinformation to propagate. We may also be thinking in a moment of uh, an excess to information possibility. And this effective pull of media designed to be enticing, engaging, addicting, stimulating, we may find that people are choosing in a free marketplace of free information to go to ideas and information that is easy, entertaining, simple, sweet. These trends mean that and this isn't news to anybody in the room, the lines between news and entertainment really are indistinguishable to readers. 
Um, even if that line still matters to us as scholars and journalists. Now, at the same time, I think that this, this process, right, of, of really kind of the networking of news um, has slowly eaten away at the capacity of journalism to provide the social empathy for civic life. So we see um, the crisis of news organizations and the crisis in local news being able to actually provide the kinds of stories and reporting that we know matter um, in creating this sense of solidarity, this sense of engagement. So where does that leave us? Um, so I wrote this dystopian essay right after uh, Donald Trump was elected. Um, I, we see uh, an, in uh, a hot take uh, in the American midterm elections, uh, that the cultural wars are still raging in America, and they're very particular American cultural wars, and yet we see um, similar disturbing trends in many Western democracies um, where traditional isolationist values are in contrast with pluralistic cosmopolitan values. Trump, as a candidate, really expertly tapped these anxieties about um, where is my source of security and solidarity in a world that is changing. And he is to be commended for being a genius politician in that. We saw him stoking similar fears in the elections that happened yesterday. Um, what's missing in this particular moment are alternate sources that are claiming to be able to offer that kind of trust and solidarity. Um, and particularly on the way in which Durkheim's notion of modernity relied, right? So this, this kind of notion that we find ourselves useful in society, we find ourselves productive, it, that I think can no longer save Western democracies. Um, in fact, if we're going to call it what it is, right? Um, it doomed many to lives of poverty, disconnection, mistrust. It served only some, certainly not those in the global south. Um, and the news is one place where, where we can think about rebuilding solidarity, but I think we have to be very careful about using um, the institution of news and journalism as a way to think about um, the process. How do we create a place, a create empathy for others, help provide a recognition for multiple publics, and create sense of social solidarity and cohesion at this particular time? Like, that's what society needs most. I don't think we can look just to journalism to do that. So, what, what do I think instead? Well, um, so a group of, um, a group of um, young scholars, younger scholars, have, have talked about this concept of network solidarity, and they were really thinking about it in terms of platform economies. How do we create a sense of people online who are perhaps working in different kinds of platform economy situations where we use those technical infrastructures to really kind of recompose um, the labor force. How do we get them to understand that they are part of a larger society? Now, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not holding their notion of network solidarity up, but I do think that we have this work cut out for us for understanding how the powerful and positive connections that people make online um, can really, to some extent, have some capacity for reweaving these social connections. Um, so, it's it. I would argue that this concept really is 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 one step. We've got to think about and map the contours of how do we move to a 21st century notion of solidarity to conceive of the social organization that is to come and the role that, that the media will have in this. Um, so I think that there's something in thinking about the solidarity and empathy that we get from networks and network structures. Um, but there's a risk. So let me tell you where I see these three kind of senses of risk. Um, hopefully you can read this slide. Um, will we trust like-minded others? Or um, will network solidarity help us to create empathy for those who are different from us, right? So, so one of the key trends in networks is this trend of homophily, of like-seeking like, that we seek out like others when we build our own networks. Will we reinforce politically pluralistic and classically liberal connections, or will we see this re-entrenchment of nationalism and the re-emergence of tribalism? Simply saying allow people to connect on our social media sites has brought us not only online activism, but also the far, the, it's fueling um, and the far right. So we, we can't assume that these notions of connection simply have a political neutrality, right? They, they, actually, may, they actually may matter more for one side rather than the other. Might the rituals of incidental news consumption, that's um, Pablo's, uh, Boskowski's phrase, might, might how people find out and find their way to news, might this, be new might this help be useful for building new types of social connections and solidarity? Or will it continue to simply fuel these economies of outrage with our attentions and clicks, right? So if, we're, if our attention to news is partial, always partial and always incomplete, is the most outrageous thing the thing that's going to get our attention? Is the most um, clickbait-worthy thing the thing that's going to get people riled up? And then what do we do about that if we're actually trying looking to networks as the source of our new forms of solidarity? Um, now, these are open questions. I, I really don't know what the answer, I really don't know what the answers are. Um, we see the rise of media manipulation, intentional subversion of free and civic discourse online, um, the kind of optimism that we had in internet studies as the internet being a, pro, a tool for pro-democracy. I think that, is, uh, that era is over as well. Um, but, I am, but I am hopeful that we can build the kind of vision of a, of a, of a 21st century solidarity through thinking through our relationship in our networks. Um, so these are tall orders, and uh, I, I think I want to leave us with kind of three, um, three things to remember as we go forward. Um, and certainly I'm looking forward to how um, you all are seeing the various 
from the various positions you're in, how you're seeing these, these changes. Um, so our sense of public in general is shrinking by every empirical measure. And we must reinvigorate our online conversations, I would argue, if we're to re begin to reweave this fabric of social solidarity. Now, I, I think the lesson for many of us from Trump's election, and in some ways from this bifurcation that we saw in last night's results from the US, is that we really have to challenge this outmoded um, liberal, small l liberal assumption that was made at the beginning of the 20th century that, that more information will necessarily lead to better democracy, right? We, we're showing that's not simply true. And we have to work and cultivate um, this notion of, of solidarity, some notion of solidarity, and I would propose network solidarity. So here are these three kind of contours. I think first we need to recognize that for now, um, looking to the division of labor or looking even to a, um, a, a union-based sense of solidarity in um, Europe and the, UK and the US, I think that's over. Um, I think Durkheim was either completely wrong about the division of labor and society and work being a source of fulfillment um, or the structural conditions are not ever going to return for that. So, so I, I'm actually quite pessimistic, right, that we're going to find it in, in work. I think as we think about what it takes to rebuild publics, we really have to think through this force of networks. Um, we have to think about network structure and network topology. Um, we have to think about how information cascades through networks. We have to think, again, about this network tendency of homophily, of like attracting likes. And we have to think about how our social media networks really amplify affect. They are designed to amp amplify affect and feeling. So keeping those kind of network traits in mind, can we think about what the new information landscape will be that builds social solidarity? Um, and finally, and this is a, a slide um, really for my colleagues in academia, I, we really need to question every time we see this assumption about access to news and information as being the, um, the uh, harbinger of democratic participation. I think we need to be very careful about that. Um, again, not to say in an absence of information that we see um, that we ever want to go back to. Absolutely not. But the problem with a sense of democracy and a sense of social solidarity right now in both Europe and the US is not a lack of information. And it's actually not echo chambers. And I can talk about more, th more about that in our discussion. On that note, I recognize um, that I have given you a lot to think about, um, some of which um, hopefully not everyone agrees with. And I'm very much looking forward to the discussion that we can have. <laughs>